0: Entrepreneurs would tinker. You did not have to get a license to tinker back then from from the airplane to electricity. I mean, all of these things were were random guys and they would come up with an idea and then they would seek out funding. So that's basically the Elon Musk model. You know, I would hazard that Elon Musk has come up with a heck of a lot more innovation than let's say Harvard University. Generally, younger Austrians are almost universally pro-Bitcoin. Older Austrians are almost universally against it. They tend to prefer gold or some other straitjacket on uh, fiat because I think for the younger Austrians you know, they understand that the key question is not gold per se. The key question is hard money, right? If you just sort of imagine the planning meeting, the bureaucrats sitting around, what are we going to do about COVID? And some junior guy shows up and he says, "Hey, I got an idea. Shut down the entire economy. Tax revenue is going to drop by half but that's okay because we can just lay off all the government workers. Instead, we have a world where the Fed can finance all this stuff. They can finance the wars, they can finance the crises, real or imagined. I think hard money in the abstract is just astounding for how it could reign in government. It'd be wonderful to get that all at once, but even just if you've got one person by one person checking out of the fiat system, that drains the swamp.
1: This podcast is entertainment, not financial tax or legal advice. Views expressed represent statements of the speaker in their individual capacity, do not represent the views of Unchained, and should not be considered investment advice. Speakers often have personal, family, or business connections to Unchained, which may include direct financial benefits. Please see our disclosure at unchained.com slash podcast. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Bitcoin Frontier podcast. This week, we have on Peter St. Onge. Peter, welcome. Thanks for having me on, Joe. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Uh, Let's go ahead and get started. Can you share a little bit about your background and why did you decide to get your PhD in economics?
0: Yeah, I started out, I got my economics degree for undergraduate up at McGill in Montreal. And of course, we didn't learn anything about Austrian economics. I'd never heard of Rothbard, Mises. You hear of Hayek because he got the Nobel and his uh, his stuff on uh, price theory. But never, you know, I'd never heard of Austrian business cycle theory. Uh, Really, in modern economics, the world more or less begins with Keynes. And then, you know, you have little pieces sort of pulled out of the ether uh, before him, you know, like Adam Smith or um, Marshall, but really nothing from Austrian And so after university, Canada was in the middle of a recession. It was a pretty harsh recession. This is like 96. And so I took any job I could find, which was marketing. So my mom was really disappointed, but um, that was actually a lot of fun. You know, you get to travel all over the world. Uh, It's a very creative industry. And for an economist, what was fun for me is that marketing has much more realistic models of human behavior. Because you got to sing for your supper, right? Like if you've got some unrealistic model, then you're going to lose money and you're going to be out of the business, right? So to me, it was kind of, it was interesting going from econ to marketing, where on the one hand, the econ I had learned had crap models. They admit they're crap. You know, they say, well, this is a simplified version. uh, So the math is tractable. Well, okay. So then it's an inaccurate model. So why are you even bothering? Like maybe find something useful to do in life it becomes this useless philosophical exercise. And on the other hand, marketing actually works. But the thing with marketing is there's almost no theory to it, right? It's kind of rules of thumb, like, oh, the customer has to hear about your product seven times and they'll buy it. It's kind of like, why? Like, you know, what do you do with this? Uh, And so what was interesting for me was sort of applying econ to marketing. And then I stumbled across it was actually Mark Skousen's book, The Making of Modern Economics. And that was my introduction to Austrian economics, which is funny because Mark is not an Austrian economist in the least. Uh, but he gave it kind of a fair representation. He's got this little totem pole, you know, where he's got Marx at the bottom and Keynes is almost at the bottom. And he had Austria in a nice position. there. I said, OK, this is interesting. Never heard of this before. And so for me, it was a eureka moment because Austrian bridged that gap Between the accurate world of marketing, but with almost no theory, and the completely silly world of mainstream economics, that nonetheless had, you know, lots of scientific backing, uh, but it was false. And so anyway, that is what brought me to Austrian economics, Uh, got really deep into it, I then took a job, I was actually in uh, corporate marketing for uh, Takara Corporation, which made the Transformers, so big toy company. Uh, very, very creative work. But I, I kind of felt like once you've kind of built models of the customer, you know, you kind of want to go deeper. And, you know, for me, the the uh, intellectual challenge uh, really took me back to the PhD. I'd also gotten lucky. I put all my money on dot coms in the mid 90s. And so I didn't have to work anymore. Uh, so went back for the PhD more or less for fun. Uh, which was George Mason. and George Mason's kind of the mothership at least back then of of Austrian economics. It was pretty much the only place that you could go for Austrian. Of course, what's funny is that Mason also has a really low ranking as a school. It's more or less a commuter school. so it's it's like a collection of people who are getting their night degrees in criminology combined with like a bunch of like philosophers who you know are really brilliant who want to learn about Austrian economics. so, it's kind of a funny school, but the end result was that I came out with a PhD and anybody who goes into academia, the standard advice is get the best degree you can because academia is extremely status conscious. And so even if you've got brilliant ideas and you're an amazing teacher, you you are your school ranking, right? So I had traded McGill, which is this really <laughs> prestigious school for you know more or less Harvard by the highway. Uh, and so you know you're basically unhirable in American academia. Plus, I'm an anarcho-capitalist, and so as academia started getting more uh, ideological, it became difficult to find a campus where um, where they would hire me. And anyway, I liked living overseas, so we went over to Taiwan. Uh, there's a university over there, Fengjia, which had a bunch of Austrian economists, and they were hosting conferences, uh, sort of to be the Chinese-speaking world center for Austrian economics, and so they would have Chinese scholars who would come over. There's actually a huge community of Austrian economists in China. It's sort of under the radar, um, but anyway. So was over there for about five years, and that took me to 2019, right before the pandemic. And it, 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 you know, once Trump came in, the empire sort of struck back and started really clamping down on a lot of things, uh, the censorship, the government control. And at that point, I kind of felt like it was time that we all had to be on the wall. And that, you know, sort of goofing around over in Taiwan wasn't really doing my share. Uh, So I came over, joined the think tank in Canada, and then joined Heritage Foundation, where I am now, uh, which is perfect, because that's that's precisely what heritage is. Uh, Heritage stands up to the regime, our CEO calls it the Biden regime. Uh, It has become a very, very uh, based organization. So at this point, uh, I do the daily videos and then my day job is heritage and having the time of my life uh, sort of, you know, trying to push around Congress and see if we can get them to actually do something that's not stupid for once.
1: Yeah, I love it. You have a very impressive background, obviously. I guess in your view, looking broadly at, you know, all of academia and universities all around the world, not just like within the Austrian Uh, thought. What do you think about them? Like, why are they where they are today? What do you think about the current state of academia?
0: Yeah, I think it got captured by governments. This was pretty predictable. Um, It depending when you time, you know, the university as an institution has been around for 500 years or more. But really, starting about 100 or 150 years ago, um, it started to get captured by governments. Prussia was really kind of the uh, the prototype for this. And it turns out it's pretty easy. You can just channel taxpayer money to them or government money from their perspective. And, you know, they'll pretty much say wherever you want. So Rothbard called that the intellectual bodyguard uh, of the regime. And that's in fact why Austrians got their name because the Prussian economists were funded by the government. The Austrians were not. That meant that the Austrians with the crappy school because the good schools would chase the government money, right? And so, you know, the Prussians would kind of look down at the Austrians, like, look at you with your, <laughs> you know, with your with your tatty facilities and your your old uniforms. Um, but anyway, any rate, so yeah, I think basically government corrupted academia. It was always going to happen. The only way that you could possibly stop it is if there was some kind of uh, strong uh, cultural taboo against getting government involved in academia. And so they were perfectly happy to take government money, even knowing that that would corrupt them. At this point, I think it's really accelerated. Even since I got into academia, uh, it was about fifteen years. I think it's actually accelerated to the point where almost, it, if you are a free thinker in academia, you cannot speak your mind. You're you're putting your career at risk. Uh, Heritage recently hired a professor from. I won't name him just in case there's um, lawsuits. But anyway, they they hired him. He had gotten fired. From a prestigious school because a guest lecturer said that ben franklin believed in freedom and a student was triggered because apparently ben franklin had slaves late in his life which i was not even aware of that uh but any and uh, as i suspect he was not either Uh, then anyway so he lost his job over that uh i mean it's 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 like a minefield and who on earth could have predicted that saying Ben Franklin believed in freedom would get you fired? I mean, you know, and 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 that's part of the the um sort of fear campaign that they run is that you have no idea where the guardrails are and so you're you're groping in the dark. There's holes, there's landmines and good luck. And so you just have to be as careful as humanly possible or you have to try to maybe not let on to your colleagues that you're You know, a dissident, so that they don't misinterpret anything. So it's—I think—at this point, I'm just really, really happy to not be in academia. I sort of pity the people who are still stuck there. Um, It's also part of the reason that I generally don't take academics very seriously in debates at this point. They're—they're in a hostage situation. They have uh, to—I'm sure—if you give them a lie detector, that they are telling the truth when they, you know, essentially parrot the regime line. But the fact is that. The human brain is very capable of convincing you, you know, it, it, it's good for your pride if you don't think that you're just parroting the regime line, but you actually think that there's merit to it. So people sell themselves on things. So at this point, academia is essentially useless uh, outside of the very few universities that are explicitly free thinking. So you've got some Christian schools, some religious schools more broadly, especially in other countries. Uh, you have some schools like um, like Hillsdale or Grove City that are specifically dedicated to free speech or to, you know, narratives that differ from the regimes. But outside of those almost boutique, I mean, you're talking 5-10% of academia at that point. The rest of it, I think, is just garbage. Um, it serves no social purpose. It should be completely thrown away and uh, we should start over. I mean, you don't really have to start over. You can just let the market do it many ways, the market is replacing the university. Um, We mentioned before the show that the daily videos that I do today, which is what I'm best known for, is I I used to do those in my classes. So I was teaching MBA. The students drink a lot. They have hangovers. They don't want to come to 9 a.m. classes. I always got stuck with the 9 a.m. classes because I was the foreigner. And so I had to sort of tempt students to come in. And so I would do these little fun videos you know, basically relating the classroom material to what's happening in the news. So, you know, why is strategic management relevant? Because Facebook is doing this and whatever. And students like those, and I enjoyed giving them. Sometimes I would go on and forget to give the lecture. <laughs> so so um, anyway, so a couple months ago, you know, I was like, okay, well, let me, let me do that again, even if I'm no longer uh, in the classroom. But the moral of the story is that the fundamental purpose of a university, that Exists. It, it's it's much much bigger than the universities. It's called YouTube and Twitter, uh, blogs, <laughs> podcasts. All of these things duplicate or replace the original function of the university, which was that you know the 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 name itself uh, referred to the idea that students would get together, they would pull their money, and then they would they would just go out and hire some expert to come and teach them something. Right. So if you wanted to learn. Carpentry, then you would get a bunch of other guys who wanted to learn carpentry and you'd go out and hire a master carpenter And you'd pay him, you know, whatever a hundred bucks an hour and he would he would teach you how to do carpentry That is the origins of the university the the I believe the universal part means everybody is is putting in together So everybody's uh, gathering Uh, and that's really where it came from. So we 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 have duplicated the university We have replaced it, you know, you can get sources on youtube I mean, today, like when people want to learn something, right? If you want to learn how to fix a door, if you want to learn about sociology, you don't say, mm, I should go back to school and get a degree in it. You go to YouTube and like you've learned it in like three days at, at, at worst. Um, and you've probably learned it better than you could have in the classroom uh, because you've got, you know, many of the world's best uh, instructors. They're more skillful. They're more knowledgeable. So I think at this point, Really, universities are just kind of a government welfare program. They are paid propagandists. They're doing, you know, what they've been doing for 150 years, which is serving the state. Uh, they are almost entirely government funded, really all over the world. Uh, and so, you know, you're you're talking to government workers at that point. So, like all other functions of government, I think they should be just completely defunded. The one thing that is not maybe immediately duplicated uh, in sort of the wild is arguably the R and D function. Okay. And universities make a lot out of that, right? They, they claim that, you know, that's sort of the one useful thing that they allegedly do. And then they, they sort of trump at that and put that front and center as their showpiece. But if we go back to the 19th century, the late 19th century is really the heyday of human ingenuity and innovation. Universities did zero R and D. Uh, it was all it, it, it was either corporate, so it was in-house. Corporations would come up with new ideas, and you know I'm I'm sure Unchained um, puts a lot of resources into product development. That is innovation. It's often much more useful innovation than the garbage that comes out of universities. Uh, and then the other way was just entrepreneurs. Entrepreneurs would tinker. You did not have to get a license to tinker back then. And you know the, the from from the airplane to electricity. I mean all of these things were, were random guys and they would come up with an idea and then they would seek out funding. So that's basically the Elon Musk model. Uh, so, and you know, I would hazard that Elon Musk has come up with a heck of a lot more innovation than let's say Harvard university.
1: Yeah, definitely fair for professors at Harvard or any of those top universities. How do you think that they truly think about like the ideas of freedom and Bitcoin? Are they like against it? Do they like, are they interested by it? But they just don't talk about it? What do you think like a majority of them truly think?
0: Yeah, I think a lot of it has to do with age. Um, what's funny about the universal or the university world is that you do your early work, you get a bunch of citations on it. The citations are, are sort of your social value. It's like how academics um, rank each other. So once you've had a long and fruitful career, you're going to have racked up all these publications, all these citations, and you'll be a big swinging fellow on campus. And at that point, you will have said a bunch of things and you will have you know formed these various theories. And now you'll be known for those. And that'll kind of be your thing. And, and people cite you based on those theories. And if a new invention or idea comes along that threatens whatever your shtick is, if you come out and agree that what you've been saying for 20 years is now obsolete, then all of that social capital evaporates. You're a nobody now. You're a has-been. You were once, you once had wonderful ideas, but now really time has passed you by. And so there's an incentive to just fight it tooth and nail with everything you have and double down attack it so you know there's a variety of professors who probably (laughs) come to mind some of them are at Johns Hopkins uh who do this this precise thing and you know the end result is that academia almost becomes hermetically sealed by age okay so anybody above a certain age with a given prestige now if you're 60 and you're completely unknown in academia then yes you can be open-minded because you have nothing to lose but (laughs) it kind of ranks by prestige so like the, the, the higher you go in academia, like the closer you get to Harvard, the more closed minded they're going to be because they have this sort of stack of treasure in the form of accumulated citations and publications that they don't want to give up. So there is some hope, um, it, it, particularly younger faculty. They tend not to have that sort of path dependence, that stack of treasure. Uh, a lot of them have been more open minded. So there are some junior professors who tend to get into Bitcoin, um, I think. Uh, surprisingly few, partly just because modern acad- or modern economics has really eschewed um, theory right it's 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 almost become an, an applied statistics program and applied statistics doesn't really <laughs> you know um, they wouldn't necessarily get that excited about Bitcoin per se. Um, I think really Bitcoin is a lot more appealing to the people who understand economic theory, economic history that's been sort of the bread and butter that's certainly how I came to it. Uh, So I think that for those two reasons, not only are there, you know, is there not much academic enthusiasm for Bitcoin, I don't think that's going to change anytime soon. I think just essentially the old ones age out. Some of the some of the young ones find a way to get publications and citations in Bitcoin, let's say, uh, and then, you know, to their credit. They probably won't sell out like a lot of guys do in Bitcoin. So you know, they'll be locked into Bitcoin at that point because their stack of treasure will all be Bitcoiny. Um, but yeah, I'm not real hopeful for a lot of innovation in academia. I think I think essentially never in my lifetime will anything useful come out of academia about Bitcoin. The best we can hope for is that some of them will wake up and actually say non stupid things about Bitcoin.
1: Fair enough. How about the like the more boutique, like the Austrian thinking, like universities why so like you know we're 14 plus years into bitcoin at this point and i feel like a lot of the more boutique austrian universities still aren't like you know huge bitcoin fanatics like they're still slow to the game why do you think that they're not like showing like hey bitcoin is how we can bring our ideas to the world yeah i
0: think that's just the stack of treasure problem generally younger austrians are almost universally pro bitcoin uh, older Austrians are almost universally against it. They tend to prefer gold or, you know, some other some other straitjacket on uh, Fiat. Um, but yeah, young Austrians, I I'm not sure. I mean, very very few of them are anti Bitcoin, because I think for the younger Austrians, you know, they understand that the key question is not gold per se. The key question is hard money, and however that hard money comes around, you get to the same. To the same outcome.
1: Fair, yeah. I mean, g- gold is interesting because I guess like it's it's been around for five five thousand plus years, and you have these you know old professors that I guess have their stack of treasure that they don't want to you know discard or discredit. And so mm-hmm. I guess it's they still get stuck on it. But it's just it's kind of mind blowing to me. I feel like they would at least have some sort of like open eye to Bitcoin, like hey, like this has potential and like this is interesting.
0: Yeah, you would think. Um, But I mean, certainly the younger ones do. Uh, I think there's a um, huge understanding of that. And, you know, I think gold does have a role to play. I'm trying to think of the meme, something like gold's main purpose in life at this point is to explain uh, Bitcoin to boomers. And I think there's something to be said for that. You know, gold, those 5,000 years of gold prove Bitcoin's case, right? Which is that when fiat screws up, Uh, the world doesn't explode and everybody dies we simply go to something hard and you know at that point then it becomes a question of are i don't know thumbtacks and toilet paper rolls superior to bitcoin as a money and you know that's that's a tractable argument at a a tractable debate at that point so I, i i still appreciate that gold exists that it shows us that the many thousands of times that fiat has died we know exactly how it ends every single time Um, You know, people first go to commodities that they have on hand because they're there. uh, And then they, um, you know, sort of gradually move over to some kind of a commodity money. Uh, Gold has traditionally won that race. And I suspect that at this point, given, um, you know, given that there are enough people who understand how to use Bitcoin, that they can teach the
1: rest. uh, I think that Bitcoin stands a very good chance next time around. I definitely agree there. Yeah, you mentioned earlier that your videos on on Twitter or x.com now and and YouTube have really uh, lifted off recently. Like, what chord do you think you've struck with many people?
0: Uh, I think plain speaking, um, not hiding stuff in jargon, partly because I'm often very dumb and I forget what things are called. And so (laughs) that's actually not a joke. Uh, so you know, I'll like forget some theory, and so I'll just describe it in words. and but, yeah, I think that you know, sort of the no bs approach, um, I don't try to look smart. Um, I, I really don't care if people think ours that I'm smart. Uh, I want things to be really simple and really easy for people to understand and and hopefully kind of fun to to listen to and 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 this all kind of grew out, I think, from what I was doing while teaching, which, you know, I guess basically i treat the audience on x as if they're hungover um grad students where you know i i've i've got to like make it worth their while <laughs> like like they're not actually compelled to be there um they're not compelled to learn about these things and so i kind of have to lure them in and you, you know
1: um make it painless and relatively easy yeah fair i feel like everyone is just like whether it's twitter TikTok, everyone's attention spans is just like so low that you got to make content engaging and entertaining, even if they're required to go see your content.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, but but I think at the same time, sort of the good news is that people are really, really hungering, I think, for uh, uh, to understand how things are working, like what's actually happening under the surface. And I think that they're starved of that in mainstream media, right? Mainstream media almost goes out of their way to hide why it's happening. They just kind of put this surface stuff And they'll actually lie about the surface stuff. They'll sort of do the the Indiana Jones switcheroo there. No, no, this is why it's really happening. And I think people are sick of that. And so a lot of people are looking for um, something that explains deeper. And, you know, that was kind of a decision early on. We were talking about how long to make the videos. And partly we made them so short, specifically because then I could go deep on it. So like one of the biggest videos early on was how people were draining money um, out of banks in favor of money market funds and money market funds cannot be fractional reserved. And so that was then deflationary for the banks. All right. That was like a huge success with regular people who like drive trucks. Okay. If you had a marketing consultant come in and you say, okay, I, I got an idea for a video. I'm really going to aim it at truck drivers. And here's what it's on. And they'd be like, you are absolutely crazy. OK, so I, I I think part of me kind of resists the notion that, like, you know, everybody's, you know, TikTok generation and no attention. I think on the contrary, people are hungering for, you know, meat in their diet for like something that that actually has substance. Um, and I think what's what's exciting is that people who drive trucks like completely normal people. My granddad drove a truck for the record. I'm not uh, <laughs> talking down there. But people who drive trucks want to understand, like how does the Fed work? How does commodity money work? How does Bitcoin work? I think it's absolutely glorious uh, that we even live in this age. You know, I grew up in the 1970s, and I, I don't think many people were curious, you know, about how I did. You know, we had pre precursors um to bitcoin maybe not in the 70s but you know I don't think many people were uh, were very interested in that and certainly not many truck drivers back then so i think we've actually got kind of a renaissance like an explosion in individual curiosity and i think that's because of the distributed universities we were talking about earlier right people log in kings and generals or practical engineering there uh, like most uh, i think especially on on our side, um, most people like they're not watching, you know, reruns of sitcoms. They're literally watching educational videos because it's fascinating. Like YouTube and, and now Twitter have kind of taught people that, um, that
1: educational videos are actually a lot more fun than the garbage that Hollywood puts out. Yeah. That's a good point. Very good point. Um, yeah. I mean, your videos are awesome, right? Like I, I feel like you, as we talked about you do a great job of explaining these very complex problems in ways that normal people can understand. And I think one thing that's also interesting is you always show that the government creates some sort of like temporary short-term solution. <laughs> what do you think is the, the real long-term solution to a lot of these problems?
0: Yeah, I think it's pretty simple. Um, if you're in the US, uh, the 10th Amendment, and hard money, uh, you get those two things and uh, we're pretty much all set. We can, you know, <laughs> turn back the clock uh, they're, you know, not going to happen unless there's a catastrophe, unfortunately. Um, and then, you know, I think in the longer term, the U S constitution, I think really solved the governance problem. Uh, it was not airtight. Unfortunately, there were, there were a couple of, um, flaws in there that they drove a truck through things like the general welfare clause, just, just little things that could have been worded a little bit differently. Uh, they were aware of that, by the way, during the constitutional convention. So they had, you know very excited debates about the general welfare those two words specifically but at any rate uh, it was not watertight it got taken apart it was I think the founding fathers would be amazed how long the Constitution held up um, you know Lincoln drove a truck through it but it healed uh, Wilson drove a truck through it but it healed FDR unfortunately uh, we haven't healed from that yet but I think the founding fathers would be uh, pretty impressed I think in terms of long run for a lot of other countries that are not so blessed to have the American Constitution, uh, I think probably the single biggest sort of magic uh, solution. I have to be careful on wording today because we live in this age. The magic solution would be um, just smaller polities, uh, tiny little countries um when your country is really small it just transforms people massively like people actually care about the government they actually feel like they make a difference they bother voting they bother getting involved uh they don't send a hundred billion dollars to random dictatorships I think just you get this real transformation and so they knew that you know when the U.S. was founded it had a population of about three million people right which would make it essentially a micro state not quite but close Uh, And that was split into 50 states. Right. So I think like the biggest state had, I don't know, 400,000 people or something. So that's the size of Luxembourg. So (laughs) I think that's part of the reason the Constitution worked so well. People actually cared. Right. People went and voted because their vote actually mattered. They could actually make a difference. And I think once you've got these empires with 325 million plus people, that's just impossible um, and you know, we can get close to it in a US context, just with more federalism, which is how the system was supposed to be built anyway. So you you push as much power as possible down to the state level. Really it'd be nice if we kept going. So the county level, the town level, the neighborhood level, basically anything that can be handled at the lowest uh level possible, you know, so the streets should be cleaned at the town level, Ukraine should be funded at the town level, in which case they won't give them a dime. Uh, so that's the, that's sort of my ideal um, for how to fix it in most countries. But I think in the U.S. we really have an unfair advantage simply in the Constitution. So sooner or later, I think we'll get a Supreme Court with spine. Uh, they've done some pretty good things the past couple of years. And I, I keep holding out for that 10th Amendment, which says that essentially everything the federal government does is illegal. Uh, so if if they and, and it says it very plainly. <laughs> so when the the uh, supreme court stumbles across that then i'm looking forward to some good times
1: yeah that's fair do you think it's it's possible that like bitcoin or bitcoin adoption grows enough to where and to some extent it starts to like defund or take power away from the government like being like maybe for sure like they can't issue mm-hmm. as much debt and and fund themselves
0: yeah, I think absolutely does. Um, in 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 your previous uh, question, right? So I said, 10th Amendment and hard money are the two big. And I mean, hard hard money is just massive for how it reins in the government. A lot of what government does is because it can grow like a cancer because it can take unlimited amount of money uh, from the people. Right? I mean, literally, like the Federal Reserve can print as much money as it wants. If you print enough money, you can essentially buy everything in the world. You know, se- central banks are this machine for literally seizing everything, and governments all over the world have used central banks to do that to get much, much bigger. And the way out of that, of course, is hard money. Now, if we look back to the hard money era, the government take in general was something like one tenth of what it is now. can okay, if we go back to the era immediately before the Federal Reserve, so you could have you know you have you have 10 times less economic burden so we have been much richer you have 10 times less regulation there in a hard money world you would never ever be able to do something like the covid lockdowns right if you just sort of imagine the planning meeting the bureaucrats sitting around what are we gonna do about covid and some junior guy shows up and he says hey i got an idea shut down the entire economy tax revenue is going to drop by half but that's okay because we can just lay off all the government workers right so he's out of here, right? He's out of a job. He doesn't get to come to the next planning meeting. Instead, we have a world where the Fed can finance all this stuff. They can finance the wars, they can finance the crises, real or imagined. Uh, so, right, I think hard money in the abstract is just astounding for how it could reign in government. It could, I, I, I think it could shrink it uh, by nine times going by history. And, it, you know, of course, it'd be wonderful to get that all at once but even just if you've got one person by one person checking out of the fiat system and getting into hard assets whether it's bitcoin or gold that drains the swamp right it 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 takes out more of that um base that the government can use to inflate on right so if you've got 325 million people using fiat, then the government can pump out all this money and kind of spread it over everybody and nobody really notices. On the other hand, if you got half the population that's checked out and they're holding uh, hard assets instead of US dollars, then it's it's that much harder for them to print money, right? Now they can't spread it out over everybody, they just got to spread it out over the victims. And then you get this beautiful feedback process where the the remaining half of the population is now hit with more inflation and so you know they have all the more incentive to start learning about bitcoin and start checking out of the system so i am excited for it you know i think in the short run bitcoin is more of a lifeboat uh but every person who gets in that lifeboat uh takes assets away from the central bank
1: it takes assets away from the government is there anything that like you think that the the bitcoin community or bitcoin companies can do to accelerate this like I agree. It seems like right now Bitcoin is a very niche topic and a niche asset for a very small group of people that use it as a lifeboat. But is there anything that we can do to accelerate the time horizon of more and more people adopting Bitcoin? Yeah, I think definitely,
0: Um, you know, putting out content that um, that educates people, you know, both on what's the game plan here, um, certainly explaining how Bitcoin works, who the people are behind it. You know, I think that a lot of people who don't understand Bitcoin, they imagine that it's all shadowy super coders, uh, Elizabeth Warren's trademark um, gang. And, you know, I just think it's really important to humanize to make people actually understand who are the people who are running uh, Bitcoin companies, who are the people who are running Bitcoin, which inevitably is how they're going to see it, you know. Um, So I think that that sort of humanizing aspect is a really big deal. And then probably the second is just tools, making it easier for people to use um, that's a big reason why I was very happy to partner with Unchained. Uh, is you know I think that that's really a missing link in a lot of the Bitcoin community. Is that the twenty-something engineering students can you know they have the confidence to come over. The the seventy-year-old grandmas. Uh, they've never heard of this weird thing. Um, You know, it can be pretty challenging to come over. And yet they're often the people who need it the most. They are the people who most at risk in a fiat system. And, you know, it's popular in the Bitcoin community to say that it's difficult to teach uh, because of the sort of Baroque structure of Bitcoin itself. And I actually disagree. Like, if you try to... Like, ask your grandmother how a credit card works, right? Or ask her how a fiat bank works. Like, where does the money come from, right? Like, is it in the vault? Because it's not. So where does it come from? Um, There was a professor out of Switzerland. He was a professor of finance. And he went on a, it was just a couple of years ago. I think his name was Werner. Is Werner. Uh, And he went on this quest to discover how money is created. He literally did not know. Okay. um, How banks create money, and so he did a loan from a local bank, Swiss Bank, on the stipulation that every step of the process, he could sit next to the person to understand who did what, on how the money was actually created. Okay, he did not know. He was a he was a professor, like a practicing professor of finance. All right. So whereas Bitcoin works exactly how your grandma thinks money works, all right? She thinks when she puts a dollar in the bank, it may as well be in like the coffee can on top of the fridge, right? She thinks that's an actual coin, all right? And economically, Bitcoin is exactly that. It is an actual coin. It's there. It's not magicked up. It's not rehypothecated. It's not conjured up by, you know, late night uh, strip club visits with your own pal, right? It's an actual thing. So, I mean, I think, honestly, Bitcoin is actually, we have like an unfair advantage. Like, economically, we're extraordinarily easy to explain. We're one heck of a lot easier to explain than fiat banking uh, or any of its derivative, you know, uh, uh, companies like credit
1: cards and things like that. Yeah, it is pretty funny. It's very counterintuitive, I guess, to like older people that may have just grown up in the dollar system and don't even really know how the dollar system works.
0: (laughs) And, and, And that's what's fun with Bitcoin, I think, is that, You know, grandma has no idea how credit card works. Excuse me. She has no idea that her bank has lent her life savings to Argentina. Okay, she doesn't know any of these things. And she doesn't need to know these things because from her perspective, it works. All right, the bank is still there. The credit card, I don't know how it works, but buy gum, you can buy it. And then later on, they charge you for it and it works. And so I think that, you know, we don't necessarily have to reach the entire population with the full Bitcoin education The goal is to sort of seed the forest enough that you can regrow everything else, right? And so as long as you have enough people in enough countries who then are proselytizing Bitcoin, and, you know, of course, Bitcoiners are like the most famous in terms of the passion, the proselytizing sort of spirit that we have as a community. Um, And then, you know, eventually you get to a point where when people see everybody around them using it, then they say, I don't really care how it works. I, I see it works. Everybody I know uses it every day. And then then you get that sort of credit card uh, type situation where they don't care they use it anyway.
1: Yeah, I think like Pierre Richard is at Riot. He, he's termed Bitcoin number go up technology. It's just long term savings technology. You don't necessarily exactly. know how it works, but you just save right. it and you know wait five years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, last question, then we can probably go ahead and wrap it up. Where do you see the world and Bitcoin in ten plus years?
0: So, kind of the moving parts, I think, are Bitcoin uptake and global financial crisis. Uh, I think in the ten-year um, time frame that we're not going to have an existential financial crisis. I think there's a good chance that we'll have like a 2008 on steroids. Um, but really, two, 2008 just ended up in a whole bunch of bailouts. Um, so, <laughs> you know, there'll be a lot of thievery, uh, but. Uh, you know gold didn't come anywhere close to replacing Fiat in the 2008 crisis so I don't think that we're looking at a global financial crisis um, in that time frame in like a 40-year time frame I think that it's a lot more likely um and so if we're looking at specifically 10 years then I think we get essentially more of the same uh, we get ongoing inflation that I think is going to be a lot higher than it's been over the past couple of decades I do not think it's transitory uh, and so you know we could get Maybe even nineteen seventies type scenario. What happened in the seventies is that hard assets just absolutely skyrocketed. So gold and silver went up about sevenfold. I think that we could expect, uh, or I would not be surprised if we saw those kind of movements in Bitcoin are actually quite a bit higher. Um, and now then, right. But other than that, I think that the world probably <clears throat> more looks, uh, more or less looks the same that it is today. So just the scams are bigger, the fiat um, siphoning of the people's wealth is bigger, uh, more people who understand Bitcoin, who use Bitcoin as their main savings vehicle. Now, if we telescope out to something like 40 years, then I think that becomes quite interesting, uh, that, you know, we could get into a sort of fiat collapse, uh, if some country or some group of countries like BRICS rolls out some kind of, uh, hard money rail, which would probably be gold just for historical reasons, uh, that could then, uh, launch some sort of fiat crisis, at that point, I think it's an interesting question, essentially, what's the mind share? Like, what's the ratio of mind share between gold and Bitcoin, right? So if fiat collapses today, then almost certainly we go to gold first, because there's, there's actually, I mean, gold was money, what, 50 years ago. There's actually bankers with living memory of when gold was money, okay? So it's got relatively high amount of mind share, and I think most likely would we would go to gold uh, if fiat collapsed tomorrow. And at that point, Bitcoin would essentially keep doing what it's doing now, probably on an an accelerating schedule. It would keep sort of winning converts from the gold bugs, uh, more accelerating because government would not be trying to get in the way as much. Um, And then, but on the other hand, if the collapse is coming in something like 40 years, then I think by then you will have had an entire generation uh, who will know Bitcoin, you know, um, pretty much anybody under age 80 will have grown up with Bitcoin. They will know people who have used it. Uh, and so I think at that point we skip the gold stage and we repeat history, but now we do it with this brand new innovation, Bitcoin.
1: Very interesting. In both of those scenarios, would, would you view gold as kind of like an intermediary step before transitioning to a full Bitcoin standard? Okay. Interesting.
0: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, it's more calming for people. Uh, it's more familiar. Um, the whole 5,000 year thing comes in, you know, it's sort of like having a solid reputation, (laughs) you know, gold. Gold has a good reputation. Um, And so for a lot of uh, the market, for for a lot of uh, people who would be holding currency, um, that's calming for them. But I don't think in the long run that gold can actually hold on because Bitcoin is a superior money. Right. You can transmit it over distance at far lower cost than gold. France famously, I think it was uh, the late 1960s, they wanted to take some of their gold home out of the New York Fed so they sent an aircraft carrier to carry the gold so i mean gold gold is fantastically expensive uh to move i mean even fiat like if you're moving a billion dollars it will cost you tens of thousands of dollars to move that you know it could take potentially tens or hundreds of man hours to move just to move a billion dollars uh <laughs> you know so i mean compared to either of these things bitcoin yes you know we it it at least on the base layer it's not great for buying a coffee but you know for for the applications that soak up the vast majority of fiat and of gold uh, i think bitcoin is just so far superior that if we do go for a gold system then i think demand shifts off to bitcoin very uh, very quickly and so you
1: know people end up um sort of functionally going to bitcoin within a decade or two Fair enough. I definitely agree with that. Uh, Peter, thanks so much for coming on. Really enjoyed this conversation. Yeah, of course. No, it was an honor. And and those were really fun questions. So thank you for that, Joe. Of course, of course. Thank you. Is there anywhere like that you want to send the audience after this? Uh, yeah, watch the daily videos on Twitter. Everybody's on Twitter now. You got to be on
0: Twitter too if you're not. Uh, I'm at Prof St. Ange. Uh, and then what else do I do? Oh, I also do articles and podcasts and things like that.
1: I love it. Yeah, everyone definitely go check out Peter's videos there. Fantastic. Awesome.